Hi, everyone. This is a re-recording of Sunday's message from Sunday, November 27th. We had some audio issues, and I wanted to make sure that this was listenable to our community. Today, we are beginning an Advent Christmas series called A Weary World Rejoices. That line is taken from O Holy Night, and I think it fits kind of the context that we find ourselves in. Coming out of the COVID pandemic, we find ourselves weary, maybe in ways that we weren't anticipating. But this can actually help the story of Christmas land in our hearts, because the context of the first Christmas was a world straining under the weight of oppression and deep weariness of soul, especially for God's people, Israel. But before you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, there are some things that you need to be aware of. During the intertestamental period, and that is specifically a 400-year period between the last prophet from the Old Testament and the birth of Jesus. So there's this gap in the story between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that's referred to as the intertestamental period. It's not talked about in Scripture, but there's a lot of political upheaval that happens during this window of time. And by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, Um, there are forces and movements in play that it's important to know about because it will make much more sense of the Christmas story and the life and teachings of Jesus. So you can Google the details of the intertestamental period, but what's important to note is that this was a time when Israel found itself under successive domineering influence, uh, first from the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans, And um, in the years preceding Jesus' birth, the desire among God's people for liberation from these pagan nations had reached a fever pitched. People were longing for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God to come. And they didn't mean that as, oh, they were excited to go to heaven. They wanted God's kingdom that was currently established in heaven to invade earth. They wanted change here and now. They wanted freedom. They wanted salvation. Now, this is a a desire that expressed itself primarily politically. Israel was like, we're God's people. Shouldn't we be in charge? Why are these pagan nations ruling and reigning? Our God is the true God. Why hasn't Yahweh established us as nation among nations? When is God going to come and turn things right side up? Now, if you've looked around at the state of the world and wondered what God was doing here and now in our day uh, and spent time praying that things in your life, in your country, in the world would really change, then you're actually pretty close to the heart of those living during uh, again, the, the, the immediate uh, decades and years leading up to Jesus' birth. There was an intense longing for God to do something. And in this 400-year period, there were four religious movements within Judaism that had sprung up, um, and each were focused on the question, how do we get the kingdom of God to come? The world needs the kingdom, the rule and reign of God to happen, How do we, as God's people, um, move the needle? How do we cause God to act in history? 
One group was the Pharisees, and they said, the only way the kingdom of God is going to come is if all of God's people commit themselves to strict obedience to God's law. And not just the laws given in um, the Torah, but also in the Talmud, the extended teachings by wise and learned Jewish rabbis. We have to have strict adherence to every jot and tittle of the law, and then that will show God that we mean business, and he will reward us by rescuing us from Rome. The Sadducees, who's another group we read about in the New Testament, said, all this talk of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, let's not push this too much. Like, we've got a good thing going. Now, it wasn't a good thing for most of God's people, but it was a good thing for the Sadducees because they were part of the temple uh, aristocracy who believed that cooperation with, with Rome and the Roman powers was the closest Israel would ever get to the kingdom of God coming. They looked at the power and might of Rome and said, Rome is here to stay. No overthrow is possible. So let's just cozy up to Rome and play the political game. And I mean, for them, that worked out really well because they accrued huge advantages while the rest of Israel did not. The zealots were another group that we read about in the New Testament. One of Jesus' disciples was a zealot. And they said the kingdom will come when we take matters into our own hands and we revolt against Rome. And we revolt violently. There should be no king but God. It is uh, sacrilegious that a pagan nation should rule over us. So we should, um, through violent rebellion, overthrow Rome. And the last group was the Essenes. And they're not really mentioned in the New Testament, and that's because they were a movement that said, this world that we find ourselves in has become so corrupted by the polluting influence of pagan Gentiles, we're going to withdraw. We're going to withdraw, go out and live in the desert, form our own communes, seek God, purify ourselves, and wait for God to sort of go nuclear and destroy uh, the corrupt forces uh, within paganism, like Rome, but also the corrupt forces within Judaism, like the Sadducees, who don't really seem to be God-fearing at all. And then God will wipe them out in sort of a Sodom and Gomorrah part two, and then we can reset. So the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essenes are all movements that arise at different times during this intertestamental period, all trying to figure out how does the kingdom of God come? How's it going to come? Now, what's the common denominator among all these groups? I mean, yes, they want the kingdom to come, and their methods are quite different. But at bottom, what it, what's important for you to understand and to see is that the common denominator was that they thought they were the ones to bring the kingdom. We as humans, we as God's people, we can enact a certain, um, we can cause heaven to move. We bring the kingdom of God down. And this is actually a trap that many people, and we see it in the New Testament, uh, many people fall into, which is thinking, well, we can earn God's grace. We can earn God's intervention and power. We can earn the miracle. We can earn God's favor by doing more of blank, right? Or maybe by doing less of blank. More religious observance. Uh, less of a particular kind of sin. And if we just white-knuckle ourselves, 
God will reward us by bringing us his rule and reign, and he will turn things right side up. And yet, as the Christmas story unfolds in the first two chapters of Luke, we see that the message of Christmas totally upends these expectations. We don't bring the kingdom. There's nothing we can do to establish God's power and presence among us. This is an act that God has to do. So with that framing in mind, let's turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to move through this uh, chapter quickly. Uh, for, sorry, the verse, first 38 verses quickly. And, and there's kind of three natural segments. There's an introduction by Luke. Then there's the birth of first John the Baptist and then Jesus, which is foretold. So let's start with Luke's introduction because it does overlap with the Christmas story. And it's an important thing to preface uh, Luke's account of the events surrounding Jesus's birth. So Luke 1, chapter 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Just as they were handed down by those who were first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So Luke is actually a non-Jewish physician writing about 30 years after Jesus' resurrection. This book is likely paid for by a patron named Theophilus. Um, Luke is carefully collecting these eyewitness accounts. He's cross-referencing them, and he's wanting to verify them so that Theophilus, who's likely a new convert, can know the certainty of the things that he's been taught about Jesus. And that's important because that uh, grounds the Christmas story, not in uh, any kind of a mythic or legendary realm, but as reported eyewitness account, uh, accounts that speak to facts, that real events that happened in real places that were not exaggerated. This is what happened in human history when God intervened. Uh, Luke writes the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts. It's kind of a part one and part two. And he's the only non-Gentile, that means non-Jewish, writer in all of the New Testament. And so his account is really, really interesting. So let's go into verse five. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Uh, sometimes you hear about this in the Bible, someone, someone will be called blameless or righteous, and that doesn't mean sinless, but it means deeply faithful. So to be blameless means um, within the pattern of obedience and faithfulness of their time compared to other Israelites, they were above reproach. But in verse 7, we read a jarring fact about uh, Zechariah and, and, and Elizabeth. It says, they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. So this is kind of a record-scratching moment as the narrative of Luke unfolds. 
This is a double whammy. First of all, we're told that both Zechariah and Elizabeth were blameless, and yet they were childless. They were devoid of the greatest blessing anyone of that time period could hope for, which was a child. Why couldn't this couple conceive? At that time, the presumption, if you could not bear children, was that God had abandoned you or rejected you or you would displease God in some way. And yet the text makes it very clear that was not at all the case for uh, Elizabeth. And yet she was not able to conceive. Now what's amazing is you learn a lot about Elizabeth's character by inference here. Because think about it. We know she's childless, but we're also told that she was very old, way past childbearing age, and yet is still considered blameless. And that means that there was a time where she thought, well, maybe God will give me a son or a daughter. Maybe God will give me a child. Oh, now, you know, the clock's ticking. Now I'm at an age where it's unlikely, but maybe still possible. And then a few years later, it's no longer possible. And then with decades in the rearview mirror, she says, this is over but she still stays faithful, right? We, we learn that both Zechariah and Elizabeth are faithful to God, even though their deepest desires went unfulfilled. Their devotion to God wasn't dependent on God giving them what their hearts most wanted, right? There's no root of bitterness that's springing up uh, for Zechariah or Elizabeth. They are serving God for God's sake, not for their own. Verse 8, once when Zechariah's division, referring to the division of priests, was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear, right? I mean, this happens a lot in the Christmas story. Angels reveal themselves to someone and the people are terrified. Gripped with fear is a Greek word that is trying to convey a visceral sense of terror. So if we have, I don't know what you think of when you think of angels, um, but if it's not invoking fear and a sense of, Wow, this is an overwhelming surround sound, uh, you know, visual, auditory, sensory o overload experience. These aren't sort of the cute, chubby little babies with wings that are flitting around. This is a demonstration of power. Verse 13, the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you are to call him John. Now we're not told here what Zechariah's prayer was, but it probably wasn't for a child. They were way past that point. As one commentator says, no, it was likely that Zechariah was praying for the redemption of Israel. He was praying into this fever pitch that had developed in the intertestamental period. God, would your kingdom come and rescue us from uh, these brutal, oppressive Roman, um, the Roman Empire? And the angel says, yes, God is redeeming Israel. And also, you're going to have a son. 
It's this miraculous sign that speaks to God's miraculous intervention to come. Verse 14, the angel says, He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord, meaning Yahweh, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The angel is is telling Zechariah, this father-to-be, that his son, John, has a mission, and he's specially designated by God to carry this out. He's going to prepare people for the coming of Yahweh through reconciliation and renewal and healing within Israel. In verse 18, though, Zechariah asks the angel, how how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. My wife is well along in years. So Zechariah doesn't see how this is actually possible. And in verse 19, the angel says to him, and I I picture a, a really long pause here where there is just this silence after Zechariah says, I, I can't be, how, how can I be sure of this? And Gabriel just stares into his soul and says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have come to tell you this good news. Right? This is, this is Gabriel saying, do you understand who you're talking to? Verse 20, and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Scene change outside the temple. Verse 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. And so they realized he had seen a vision in the temple because he kept making signs to them, but he remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant and for five months remained in in seclusion. It's interesting that even though it was a miraculous birth, God still invited Zechariah and Elizabeth to participate in the miracle, right? They have to act on the promises of God, in this case, by making love. And I think that's a beautiful picture about how God could do it without us, but he often invites us to play a part. Not that he needs us, but he wants us to uh, move forward in acts of faith, trusting in what he's told us to do. And and there's an interesting note here that the text gives us the detail that Elizabeth became pregnant, but she remains in seclusion socially for five months. And um, I didn't understand this. And this is something I I did a a bit of a rabbit trail into because it wasn't intuitive um, for me or to me why the seclusion. And one commentator had a brilliant insight, and I believe it was from the New International Application Commentary. I can't remember who wrote the one on Luke, but they said, the point of the seclusion, when you pair it with the fact that Zechariah is unable to speak, is that God is arranging the conditions of John's growth, even in the womb, to prepare him for silence. 
because most of John's ministry is going to be living on his own in the wilderness. And I think that's an amazing uh, nod to the fact that even before we're born, God is at work in our lives. God is preparing us for the plans and purposes that he has for us. I think that's amazing. In verse 25, um, Elizabeth, as she grows in her pregnancy, she says, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and has taken away my disgrace among the people. See, Christmas is about the redemption of Israel, the, the possibility open now for all people to be saved and redeemed. And yet, there was also a very personal edge to Christmas for Elizabeth. She wasn't just excited that God was going to do something for God's people, but the Lord did something for her. And I pray that this would be a Christmas where, in sort of the, the view from 30,000 feet, we realize what God has done for the world, but also what God has done for me, for you, in an individual way. That he's taken away our shame. He's affirmed our value. And he's placed new life and hope within us if we have received the Christ child into our hearts. Okay, so that's kind of part one. The birth of John the Baptist foretold. Now the scene shifts again. And we learn about some of the earliest events foretelling Jesus' birth. Verse 26, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. That detail is, in, is important because there are many prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming king, the coming anointed king, the Messiah, who would redeem and rescue Israel. But those prophecies point to the fact that the Messiah was going to be a descendant of David. It was going to have to be someone who came from the royal line of David. We're told, as verse 27 unfolds, that the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. So a specific naming for John, a specific naming for Jesus. Names are a big deal in the Bible. And Jesus' name literally means Yahweh's salvation. Transliterated from the Hebrew and Aramaic, Jesus' name is Yeshua, which is in Hebrew, Joshua. And this word is a combination of Yah, which is an abbreviation for Yahweh, and Yasha, which means rescue or deliverance or salvation. So <laughs> this, you know, Jesus, there's a very on-the-nose on moment here. The angel says, this person's name is a, an encapsulation of their identity and mission, which is that Yahweh saves. God is coming to save. Verse 32, the angel says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him 
the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will have no end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary said. May your word to me be fulfilled. And the angel left her. I want to share two important takeaways that I don't want us to miss this Christmas from this first half of the first chapter of Luke's gospel. The first is this. Don't mistake God's silence for his absence or his inactivity. Don't mistake God's silence for his absence or his inactivity. I want you to remember that intertestamental period. A final prophet emerges in the Old Testament, Malachi, and then God is silent for 400 years. And from a human perspective, it can seem like nothing is happening. God's on mute. Maybe God has abandoned us or neglected us. These were some of the concerns that Israel was wrestling with at that time. And yet Galatians 4.4 says, In the fullness of time, God sent his Son. So those 400 years, yes, God was silent, but God was not absent and God was not inactive. God was preparing for something important. Those early characters in Luke, especially Elizabeth and Zechariah, those characters teach us to stay faithful to God, even when we don't seem to be hearing from God, when our prayers seem to be hitting the ceiling, when there isn't the harvest that we expected after investing time and energy and money and prayer into this thing or this relationship or this opportunity. As we move towards Christmas, some of us may find ourselves walking through a season where God feels absent and distant and detached. And if you have devoted yourself to him, but he feels unresponsive, I want to encourage you to stay faithful. Do the next right thing. Humble yourself and live as if something important is brewing behind the curtain of your awareness. And this isn't to trick yourself. That's what it means to walk in faith. Faith recognizes that some of God's most powerful interventions are preceded by a pregnant pause. Some of God's most powerful interventions are preceded by a pregnant pause. So don't give up. Don't lose hope. Let this part of the Christmas story strengthen your heart and lift your spirit. The second um, second insight that the text drives us towards that we can't miss is that Jesus is a big deal. Jesus is a huge deal. You know, in 38 verses, you really could not create larger expectations 
for who this Jesus character is going to be than what we find in these uh, opening verses. Jesus is presented as greater than anyone who has come before him. He is preceded by someone who themselves has a miraculous birth, who we're told this John character is going to do great things. And yet when John shows up on the scene, he's going to say, oh, compared to the one that I'm preparing the way for, I'm nothing. So this John, this great character is just a forerunner. And Jesus doesn't even have a miraculous birth he has sort of a capital M miraculous birth, an unprecedented one, where he is born of a virgin. He's going to be called great and son of the Most High. This is a designation of divine royalty. But it's also a kingship that's going to have no end. It says his reign is going to be forever. What could that mean? What kind of king gets to stay on the throne forever? I mean, to a Jewish mind, there's only one king that gets to inhabit the throne of reality forever, and that is Yahweh. That is God. Jesus' name, remember, it means God saves. This is a layering of a bunch of not-so-subtle clues that Jesus is a huge deal, that this is a one-of-a-kind event coming down the pipe, pointing to a one-of-a-kind person. If you are a Christian and you're listening to this, to this, if you've placed your faith, your life, your eternity in Jesus' hands, I invite you to rediscover and remember the power and glory of who Jesus is this Christmas. But if you're not a Christian, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, if your conception of Jesus is small or stunted, it doesn't align with this divinely unique, one-of-a-kind vision we are being asked to prepare for, then I want to challenge you to read these early chapters of Luke and allow them to carry you into the rest of the book as we move towards Christmas. Read and watch what happens when Jesus arrives on the scene. And I'm asking you to do this both, I'm asking you whether you consider yourself a believer or a seeker or a skeptic because there are forces in this world that want your view of Jesus to stay very small and very domesticated. Just a cute little baby. Just a nice guy. Just a hippie prophet inviting us to love and show kindness and love everywhere we go. A spiritual guru that sort of teaches vaguely new age ideas about love and consciousness. These are pretty popular conceptions that many people hold about Jesus. And these frame Jesus as someone you could consult, uh, you know, certainly learn from. But the events surrounding Jesus push us beyond those limited conceptions. Luke frames Jesus as not only the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament was building towards, but the fulfillment of humanity's deepest needs and humanity's deepest wants. 
love, hope, joy, peace, salvation from death, hope for a weary world. So as we read and reflect on these opening chapters, I invite you to cycle through them several times between now and Christmas. Read them slowly, maybe listen to them in an audio Bible, on repeat, a chapter a day, one, two, one, two, one, two. We're just going back and forth. We're chewing over them. We're letting the text do a work in us. We're letting Luke lead us deeper into Christmas so that we can become certain that these things really happened and we can come to discover for the first time or rediscover the only hope that can transform a weary world. Let's pray. God, I pray for everyone listening that they would seek you with their whole heart, that there would be an open and wholehearted pursuit of you this Christmas, that amidst all the distractions, all the gatherings, all the food, all the presents, all the planning, all of the music, all these good things, God, that they wouldn't distract us from investing time in reflecting and meditating on who you are. Would you reveal yourself to us this Christmas, God, for your name's sake and for your glory. Amen.